song you heard Alan singing earlier and the choir sing just now is uh, by Rafe Von Williams. It's from a set of five songs called Five Mystical Songs by Rafe Von Williams. All of the texts are by a 16th century German monk named George Herbert. I'd encourage you to go look it up and listen to all of it. It's really just incredible text and incredible music. Rafe Von Williams, Five Mystical Songs. Let's pray. Preserve us, O God, for in you we take refuge. You are our Lord, and we know no good apart from you. Therefore, inhabit the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, so they may be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If I were a scriptural literalist, I would be worried about beginning my message this morning the way I'm going to. See, scripture talks a good deal about not worrying about your external appearance or nor adorning, adorning yourself with gold jewelry. But I think you'll uh, forgive me as I uh, brag a little bit and show off this new ring that I got on Friday morning. Or Friday evening. I'm sorry, it was not Friday morning. Friday evening. Please forgive me as I brag about that. You see, I stand before you this morning uh, overwhelmed with a great amount of joy just two days ago, as you heard earlier, I stood at an altar in a chapel just outside of Dallas, Texas, and married my wife. That's the first time I've said that publicly. My wife, Becca. I'm also joyful, very joyful, because after a year of our being long distance with me here in Mobile and her in Fort Worth, she's here this morning sitting in the soprano section of the choir loft. She probably doesn't like that I'm pointing that out, but there she is. Just by my saying this, you'll have already known that she is a saint, for not only did she agree to put up with me in marriage, an audacious task by every measure, but she also agreed to be in worship two days removed from our wedding, a worship service in which, on top of all of my normal responsibilities, I'm responsible for the preaching. For her and for this opportunity to speak today, I am joyful and I give thanks. I'm not just joyful, though, I'm uncomfortable. Quite a bit uncomfortable. This feeling has nothing to do with Becca and everything to do with where I stand. I don't know if you've had the chance to stand in this pulpit, but I can tell you with, certainly it is with certainty it is very tall and very heavy. By tall, I mean its literal height. Basically, if you don't like my sermon, there's no way I can hide if you throw anything at me. By heavy, I mean the weight that I feel on my shoulders as I stand in a spot where the likes of Carl Adkins, Joel McDavid, Steve Dill, Mike Watson, Gorman Houston, and just last week, Robbins Sims have stood to enlighten you on a weekly basis. It's a spot where district superintendents and bishops have encouraged you, a spot where Wayne Flint, Rachel Held Evans, and Jim Wallace have challenged you. When Robbins and I decided I would preach this Sunday, I walked away from the conversation feeling like I'd lost my mind, and so did he. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm here, and I will give to you what God has placed on my heart. I'm here because this Sunday is one of my absolute favorite Sundays of the entire year. The book of James warns us that we shouldn't have favorites, and those of us in ministry are taught no Sunday should truly be any more special than any other one, for every Sunday is about glorifying God and fellowshipping amongst fellow believers. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of corporate worship. Yet here I stand unapologetically confessing to you 
on this, one of my favorite Sundays. Declared by the United Nations in 2000, June 20th, which was this Thursday, this past Thursday, is World Refugee Day. Soon thereafter, the World Evangelical Alliance, along with several Christian denominations, declared Sundays before and after June 20th should be recognized each year as World Refugee Sunday. In recent years, the trend of recognizing its legitimacy as a liturgical holiday has grown alongside the refugee crisis taking place around the world, a growing epidemic concerning which I'd now like to share some statistics. Stay with me. You heard the word statistics and you probably zoned out, but I promise I won't do too many. At the end, by the end of 2017, there were 68.5 million individuals worldwide who had been displaced as a result of persecution, conflict, violence, or human rights violations. One in every 110 people globally is either an asylum seeker, internally displaced, or a refugee. 3.5 million children, refugee children, are unable to attend school and receive any form of education. Since 2015, more than 1.4 million persons have taken the chance to swim the Mediterranean Sea or board unworthy boats, uh, unseaworthy boats and rafts in desperate attempts to flee Northern Africa and Middle East. In that same time frame, three, time frame in three and a half years, 10,000 have drowned in the process. Now, many would prefer I keep this out of the pulpit. They would argue that what I'm discussing is a political issue and that politics don't belong in the church. I very much agree that this is a political issue, but I couldn't agree, disagree more that politics don't belong in the church. Jesus was not only political, he was adamantly outspoken about the politics of his day. He was defiant as he challenged unjust governing laws and those who would seek to enforce them, legalistic religious laws and authorities, social customs, and the upper echelon of society who sought to keep class divisions in place. Jesus was very political, and so should we be as well. However, one thing Jesus was never was partisan. You see, that's what we should really be concerned about with church and politics. We should be political, but we should never be partisan. Politics, when used in its purest sense, allows us, even when we disagree, to work together for the common good. It creates empathy. It allows us to think, to feel, to sense what the other is thinking, feeling, and sensing. When partisanship creeps in, prejudice comes with it. The empathy stops, and all of the preconceived notions of the other keep us from working together for the common good. Partisanship creates me versus them. It inserts the lie into our minds that the other is selfish, the other is bad, and that the other does not belong. I mentioned earlier that over 10,000 people have drowned fleeing persecution across the Mediterranean Sea. Among the approximately 216 
who drowned in the month of September 2015 alone, 216 in one month, was Alan Curdy. You may not recognize the name, but I would guarantee you that you would recognize this picture. You see, Alan Curdy was a three-year-old Kurdish boy who was fleeing with his family during the Syrian civil war in which all of the Kurds were being persecuted. In the early morning hours of September 2nd, 2015, having been denied asylum multiple times and desperate to escape persecution, Alan's family of four boarded a boat with 12 others, none of them having life jackets, and the boat intended for only eight people. They headed for Greece, hoping for solace, hoping for respite, hoping to find a refuge. Shortly after it launched, the boat capsized, and a now infamous picture shows Alan's three-year-old lifeless body washed up on the beach of Bodrum, Turkey. I remember getting home late on September 3rd, 2015, after a rehearsal. I had crashed on the couch. It had been a very long day, and I turned on the TV. The image of Alan Curdy spread across my television, and I've never quite been the same. I watched for the next several minutes as the news reporter told the story of what happened, and I just wept. I thought of my nephew Lawson, who was four years old at the time, and found myself consumed with the thought, what if it was him? Politics is not the reason there are 68.5 million displaced individuals in the world. Politics is not the reason why 3.5 million children cannot receive any education. Politics did not kill Alan Curdy. Partisanship, fear of the other, and a feeling that they do not belong is the cause. When I was in fifth grade, my mother and father divorced. My mother won custody and moved my sister and I with her from Alabaster, Alabama, back to her home of Anniston. The majority of her family still lived there, and she desired for us to be closer to them. At first, things were wonderful. I was able to be closer to cousins my own age as we all lived on the same street in the same neighborhood, often playing together, eating together, spending time together. It was a a great time in my life. I still don't know quite what it was, but something happened over the next year, and my mother's relationship with the rest of her family soured. Soon we weren't playing together, we weren't eating together, and we rarely saw each other. Many assumptions were made, and it caused a rift between my mother and her family. When I was in sixth grade, just a short time after that, my mother suddenly lost her job. She struggled to find work, and soon thereafter, we lost our house. I still remember sitting in my mother's van as she called relative after relative, asking if we could stay with them. We looked out, and one of my aunts let us come to their house. We weren't there very long before they asked us to leave. We were back in the van. And once again, my mom called several relatives. One of my family members, when asked if we could come stay with her, told my mom over the phone that she would need to pray for guidance. I was 11 years old, and it almost took my faith right out of me. 
That family member did end up letting us stay, although it was never truly a, felt, a feeling of welcome. Eventually, our lives were back on track in a positive light, but the damage had been done. In my mind, to my family, I did not belong. We're facing an epidemic of outrageous proportions. Millions of men, women, and children around the world are being told that they do not belong. They are being told they don't belong by their countries of citizenship, that they aren't the right ethnicity, they're not the right color, they're not the right gender, they're not the right religion, they're not the right sexuality, they're not the right ideology, and they are being hurt through the abuses of power and force. Then as they seek refuge from this persecution, from this poverty, this starvation, this violence, they are told they don't belong because they aren't the right nationality or they're not going through the right processes which take years and resources far beyond their reach. They find themselves stuck between a rock and a hard place, both of which are plastered with giant banners that say, you do not belong. Meanwhile, Christ tells us, as we heard in our gospel lesson, and you'll have to forgive me as I'd like to read it again, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. It never says he'll separate them by their age. It never says he'll separate them by their race nor their gender. He will not separate them as Americans from Mexicans. He will not separate them as Egyptian from Kenyan. He will not separate them as Israeli from Palestinian. No, he will separate them in one way. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. For I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the, righteous uh, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirst and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Christ will divide the sheep from the goats solely based on the ways in which they have and have not cared for his people, for his family. On Friday, I made a vow to Becca. I made a vow to love her as I love no other, I made a vow to share all that I am with her. I made a vow to take her as my wife through sickness and health, through poverty and plenty, through joy and sorrow, now and forever. 
We can all agree that when I don't uphold these vows, I fail her as her spouse. There will be times it happens, and we will do all our best to derive mercy and grace from Christ to forgive each other and work to better ourselves. But it all begins, it all starts with the promise that we make to one another. From that same vein, why is it that we make promises to Christ that we will follow him, that we will be his disciples, we will love him, and we will obey him, yet he clearly gives us Matthew 25, and we don't act? I don't know if John Wesley actually said this or not, or if it's just attributed to him. I've heard both. But all I know is someone said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. I tell you that when we feed all the hungry that we can, we welcome all the strangers and refugees that we can, we clothe all the naked, house all the homeless, heal all the sick, and free all those in bondage that we can, and we do it with a blind eye to the laundry list of demographic statuses. When we do all these things that Christ explicitly directs us to do, I tell you we are doing it to Christ. And when we don't, when we let partisan beliefs blind us to those in need, regardless of socioeconomic status or race or gender or nationality, when we don't help the refugee, in the same way, we do it to Christ himself. Christ looks at the American businessman, the Honduran farmer, the Israeli mother, the Palestinian father, and the Kurdish three-year-old. He looks at every man, woman, and child and says, You are mine. You belong. When will we do the same? Let us pray. God, may we be a people that looks at all of your people, all of your family, all of your children, and we tell them they have a place, that they are loved, that they are welcome. Make us a church and a body that embraces all of your family. Amen. Our hymn of invitation this morning is a, a wonderful hymn. This is my song. It speaks of how we are to have pride in where we come from. We are to have hope and love for those around us, but never more so that it makes us turn a blind eye to the other. I invite you to consider that this morning as I invite you to stand and sing hymn number 437, This Is My Song.